There's an old joke that you've probably heard before, as you've probably heard most of my jokes before. It goes, why did the children of Israel wander in the wilderness for 40 years? And the answer, because like most men on a trip, Moses was too stubborn to stop and ask for directions. Although the joke illustrates a profound truth about the male species, it's not biblical. In fact, Moses was not the one who led the children of Israel at all. Their God was God. In verses 21 and 22 of chapter 13, we're told, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. When God moved, Moses moved. When God stopped, Moses stopped. In front of the camp of the Hebrews, they could see a column of cloud in the daytime. It turned into a wall of fire at night. You remember, we've seen this imagery before. When God appeared and walked through the animal parts, sealing the covenant that he had made with Abraham. You remember, he appeared in the form of a burning torch, the fire and a smoking censer, the cloud. Always the fire and the cloud. Hey, this miracle was Moses' map as he led the people through the wilderness. God didn't lead the children of Israel out of bondage to abandon them in the wilderness. No, they were freed in order to follow. This is why you and I have been forgiven. This is why we've been set free. To follow Jesus Christ. God has saved us. Not to pack a pew until he returns. No, after we're saved, we too immediately embark on a journey. He has plans and purposes for us. He wants to lead us to a destination. God has promised Israel that he would lead them to a new land. And now he takes them to Mount Sinai in order to show them a new way. God takes them to the mountain where Moses himself gained his marching orders and he's going to give to them his law and teach them how to worship him. In chapter 13, God freed the Hebrews and in doing so gave them two reminders of their deliverance. First of all, they were to keep the feast of unleavened bread. Then they were to offer to God the firstborn of their families and flocks. Both memorials would teach them significant lessons. Remember, throughout Scripture, leaven is a type of sin. Passover is a symbol of our deliverance in Christ from sin. But notice always the sequence. The Passover occurs first, then the feast follows for seven days And the same progression takes place in our lives as well. You see, when we come to Christ, who is our Passover, Jesus takes us just as we are, right where we're at. But he doesn't expect us to stay that way. Immediately after Passover, the people celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They cleaned out all of the leaven out of the house and they spent those seven days with no leaven, eating just unleavened bread. That's what God expects of us. He accepts us just as we are right where we're at. He doesn't expect us to clean out the leaven in order to be saved. But once we are saved, then it's our responsibility to begin to rid ourselves of any attitude, any action that might bring displeasure to the Lord. Notice too here in chapter 13, verse 1. Since God saved the firstborn of the Hebrews, they were required to sanctify or to set apart their firstborn to the Lord. Here's the principle we need to note. The redeemed of the Lord belong to the Lord. Now, if you go out and purchase a car, we don't generally purchase a car for someone else to drive. If you purchase the car, you expect to drive it. Likewise, God purchases us in order to possess us. 
in order to drive us and direct us. The law of the firstborn required every big brother born into the flock to be literally sacrificed to the Lord, except the firstborn of two species. Donkeys and humans were redeemed instead of sacrificed. They were given to the Lord in essence, but then they were bought back or redeemed for a sum of money, and it all amounted to an offering to the Lord. It's interesting that donkeys and humans are paired together here in chapter 13. And I wonder why. Could it be that we're both pretty stupid, pretty stubborn? It's interesting, only once in the Scripture is a donkey portrayed in a favorable light. And guess when? It's when Jesus rode the donkey on his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And catch the profound lesson. Just like the donkeys in Scripture, the only time we as humans are useful are when we are under the reins of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the shortest route from Egypt to Canaan would have been to go north along the sea and through the land of the Philistines. But God knew his people weren't ready for a fight. And that's what they would have gotten if they had taken that route. Instead, according to verse 17, he took them east toward the Red Sea, which sets up one of the grandest miracles in all of the Bible. Once a little boy came home from Sunday school. His dad asked him what he had learned. He said, Dad, this morning we studied how the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea. Dad said, Great, son, tell me the story. And the little guy started, Well, Moses went behind enemy lines to rescue the Hebrews. He ordered troops to build a pontoon bridge over the Red Sea. Then after the Hebrews had crossed the bridge, he called for the B-52s to bomb the Egyptians and blow up the bridge as they tried to cross. His dad interrupted him and said, Now, wait a minute, son. Are you sure that's what your teacher told you? The little boy shook his head and he said, No, Daddy, but if I told you the truth, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> there are people who doubt the biblical record, the account of the crossing of the Red Sea. They find it hard to believe. But understand, they have forgotten who made the Red Sea to begin with. Since God created the earth and the laws that govern nature, then obviously he can intervene or supersede those laws if and when he chooses. Remember what God asked Abraham? Is anything too hard for the Lord? We don't know the exact spot where the Israelites camped. Evidently, it was a site hemmed in by cliffs and rocky peaks. For when Pharaoh changes his mind about letting the Hebrews leave, his chariots come torpedoing toward the Hebrews, and they have nowhere to run. They are hemmed in. And this is where the Hebrews reveal their true colors. Chapter 14, verse 11 and 12 tell us, Then they said to Moses, Because there are no graves in Egypt, you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die in the wilderness. That's not what they were saying a few days earlier. <laughs> they were praising God and thanking Moses. How ungrateful can you be? Every time I watch the Ten Commandments, the movie, I want to grab that weaselly little Edward G. Robinson and <laughs> slap him silly. Don't you? <laughs> How quickly they turned on Moses. God did miracles and wonders to bring them out of Egypt. Why wouldn't he do wonders again? Does at some point God's wonders and miracles dry up? Hey, consider it for yourself. Apply it to your own situation. Does God ever run out of miracles? No way. 
Moses responds to the doubters and the skeptics in verses 13 and 14. He says, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Perhaps tonight you're hemmed in. You're in the midst of an impossible situation. You've got nowhere to run. Listen to the three things that Moses told the Hebrews. First of all, don't be afraid. Don't cave in to fear and doubt. Your faith is being tested. Secondly, stand still. Oftentimes our frantic efforts only complicate the situation. Man, just chill. The Lord is about to fight for you. And thirdly, See the salvation of the Lord. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Trust in His hidden resources, even when you don't see them. Verse 21 and 22, they give us the play-by-play of what happens next. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land. And the waters were divided. And so the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground. And the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Quickly, the angel of God and the wall of fire that had been in front of the camp, they swing around and they position themselves in the rear. They form a hedge between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. The fire holds out the chariots all night long as it lights the way for the Hebrews to cross through the waters. I'm sure the Hebrews thought that the Egyptians were the rat and they were the cheese. But God had constructed a huge mouse trap, big enough to destroy the whole Egyptian armor. For as soon as he removes the hedge of fire... The Egyptian chariots storm into the path that God has cut between the walls of water. According to verse 25, God loosens the lug nuts on the chariots. And when they go down into the sea, all of the wheels on the chariots fall off. The Egyptians are now the ones that are trapped. And it's then that God tells Moses in verse 26, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians. And Moses stretches out his rod, and the Egyptians are suddenly all washed up. Liberal scholars tried to rationalize away this miracle with different theories. One man suggests that this east wind froze the waters, and the Israelites skated across on ice. Preposterous. That's a bigger miracle than the wind holding back the waters. Another man suggests that the Hebrews crossed the Red Sea in a marshy area. Perhaps on a sandbar where the water was only ankle deep. But if you accept that idea, it only forces you to draw another greater miracle. Because how did the, how did God drown the Egyptian army in ankle deep water? <laughs> trying to resolve one miracle and creating a larger one. Guys, God says what He means. He means what He says. It's always best to take the Bible literally. The waters fell back over on the Egyptians and they were drowned. Chapter 15 is the first psalm in the Bible. It was written by Moses and it praises God for His victory over the Egyptians. Verse 1 begins... I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider He has thrown into the sea. Understand, God never ekes out a victory. The braves do sometimes, but God never. God always wins by a landslide. His wins are blowouts. He leads the league in shutouts. God triumphs gloriously. Moses' song is full of wonderful imagery. The Lord is a man of war. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. They sank like lead 
in the mighty waters. It's a wonderful psalm. In verses 14 through 16, Moses says that God's victory will strike fear in the hearts of the surrounding nations. He says in verse 15, trembling will take hold of them. After Moses wrote the song, his sister Miriam grabbed her tambourine and put the whole thing to dance. And the Hebrews celebrated. They partied hardy and they gloried in God's triumph. But at the end of chapter 15, their song of celebration turns into a whine. Some people like to wake up in the morning and rise and shine. The Hebrews like to rise and whine. They had traveled several days without finding any water. And so finally they came to a watering hole, but the spring was poisonous. The name of the place was Mara or bitter. And we're told in verse 24, the people murmured against Moses. Sadly, This will be the all-too-common occurrence over the next 40 years. Again, though, God delivers Israel. He shows Moses a tree that he tosses into the spring, and the additive purifies the waters. I believe the same is true in our lives. We become pure not by rummaging through our life, trying to picking out all the impurities. I don't think that's the process. I think the way God wants to purify us is by adding His righteousness, adding His love, adding His holiness. It's the additive that causes the purity. He throws a tree into our lives, the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is the righteousness of Christ that purifies us and sets us free and makes us into the people He wants us to be. In chapter 15, verse 26, God makes a deal with Israel. He says, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now, remember this verse when we begin to discuss the laws concerning diet and hygiene. We'll get to that over it, particularly in Leviticus. The regulations given to Moses protected the Hebrew people from all sorts of communicable disease and food contamination. I've got a book in my library that's entitled None of These Diseases, and it's by M.D. His name is S.I. McMillan. And he explains how that all of the Mosaic Laws are also health smart, good hygiene, good food preparation. Israel adopted the standards and the safeguards that God gave them in the law. And as a result, they eliminated a lot of the communicable diseases that tormented and tortured the other Gentile nations. In fact, it has taken secular society thousands of years to figure out some of the things that were inherent in the law that God gave his people. S.I. McMillan writes, The biblical method for control of infectious skin diseases is unequaled in the history of ancient man. Historians credit the Bible for the dawning of a new era in the effective control of disease. I find that interesting. In chapter 16, verse 3, again, the Hebrews murmur against Moses. Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by the pots of meat and when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. You're going to get tired of all this murmuring before we're through. In verse 8, Moses says, and he puts an interesting spin on their murmuring. Your murmurings are not against us. They're against the Lord. We need to remember that. 
When we start to complain about the resources that God has provided us, or the direction that God leads us, or the circumstances that God allows, or the authority that He set up over our lives, when we complain about those things, guys, we are in reality not complaining against man. We are complaining against the Lord. He's sovereign. He's in control. He is in charge over those issues. And when you complain about them, you're not complaining against Moses. You're complaining against the Lord. Moses was just a convenient scapegoat. It's been said, when we swear, we take the name of the Lord in vain. But when we grumble, we take the purposes of the Lord in vain. Think about it. You know, it's a lot easier to complain than it is to believe. It's a lot easier to grumble than it is to have faith. Murmuring and grumbling are so often simply masks for unbelief. And yet, despite their spiteful treatment of Moses, God is faithful. And he meets their need for food twice daily. In the a.m., he sends bread from heaven. In the p.m., he spices up the menu with meat. He sends quail. I'm sure if you had analyzed the nutritional composition of the bread from heaven, it would have contained 100% of the USDA daily requirements, I'm certain. It was God's wonder bread. Verses 14 and 15 tell us what happened that first morning. And when the layer of dew lifted, there on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? And the word manna actually means, What is it? Verse 31 tells us, And the house of Israel called its name manna, and it was like white white coriander seed, And the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. It was a combination. Kind of the texture of seeds or nuts. And it had the taste of honey. And that's why I like to call it Hebrew nut and honey. (laughs) We're told that each person got an omer a day of the manna. An omer was a measurement equivalent to about seven pints. So everybody got seven pints of manna a day. There were people, though, who tried to hoard the manna and take more than a single day's portion. In verse 20, we're told what happened to it. It bred worms and stank. Sounds like some of the things in our refrigerator. You see, God wanted the Hebrews to trust Him day by day. He gave them only that day's portion. They were not allowed to hoard it and to stockpile it. He wanted them to walk daily by faith. Not just muster faith from time to time. He wanted them to walk by faith. If they had hoarded the manna, trust me, they would have forgotten about God. The same is true with us. Oftentimes, a hefty bank account can be a hindrance to our faith. The tendency becomes to trust in the surplus than it is to trust in the Savior. It's when we need Him daily that we stay close to Him, that we walk near to His side. This is why Jesus told us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus wants us to learn to live in a daily awareness of our need for Him. We're told in verse 35, And the children of Israel ate manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. That seven pints a day for three million people, 365 days a year, that's a total manna requirement of two and a half million tons of manna a year. That's doing some cooking, man. Think of it this way. Let's say we took on the food service for the Hebrews for just one day. 
We agreed to feed three million Hebrews, not manna. We don't know the recipe. But let's say we agreed to feed the Hebrews a cheeseburger, French fries, and a Coke for just one day, three million of them. In order to do that, we would need three million quarter-pound beef patties. That's 750,000 pounds. If we were shipping that in on rail, it would take 200 freight cars. We would need 10 locomotives to pull it. We would also need seven rail cars to pull the 750,000 pounds of potatoes for the fries. And 75 freight cars to carry the 750,000 gallons of Coca-Cola that we would need. And to ice down the Cokes, we would need 375,000 pounds of ice, which would require four more freight cars. Here's the rest of the grocery list. Buns, 250,000. Mustard, 11,000 gallons. Dill pickles, 12,000 gallons. Tomatoes, 50,000 gallons. Cheese, 200,000 pounds. Onions, 175,000 pounds. I don't know if they've got that much in Vidalia. Lettuce, 150,000 head. Now we're talking a freight train over 300 cars long. That would be a freight train about three miles long if you're waiting at the intersection. Now imagine cooking this volume of food. If you cooked a thousand patties per minute, that's a lot of grills going. It would take you 48 hours, two days to cook the burgers. And that's not even figuring the time to peel and cook the french fries, slice the onions and tomatoes, and pour the Coca-Colas. And yet God provided the children of Israel a meal like this every day for 40 long years. What a miracle. Not even Bob Timps and the Calvary Cookers could pull off something like that. <laughs> Exodus chapter 17, verse 1, is a provocative verse that has direct implications for the lives of all believers. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Notice. God leads the Hebrews to a place where there is no water. This is not what we would expect from God. Surely if God is leading, we'll always wind up in bountiful places. He would never lead his people to a dry well, or so we think. And yet that's exactly what God does. Guys, too many of us have a preschool faith where bad things always happen to bad people and good things always happen to good people. We think that every time you make a decision that produces uncomfortable circumstances, it means that you must have missed God's will. Not necessarily. Sometimes God leads us into difficult places. He directs us there in order to test us in order to refine us. A.W. Pink writes, We need to realize that in every circumstance and situation where faith is tested, the Lord Himself brought us there. If this be apprehended, it will not be so difficult for us to trust Him to sustain us while we remain there. God leads the people to Rephidim to test their faith, but again they start to gripe. And in verse 3 of chapter 17, we're told, The people complained against Moses. And look at Moses' prayer in verse 4. What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Can you imagine? (laughs) What a bunch of ingrates. Understand, there's now manna every morning. There's quail coming every evening. I mean, the pizza man is showing up every night, every morning. And yet, because there's no immediate supply of water, a lynching mob has formed. 
Verse 6 records what God tells Moses. I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so. Here's another miracle. Hey, you'd think a miracle a day would keep the grumbling away, but not with these Hebrews. Moses ends up naming the site Masa and Meribah, which means tempted and contentious. And these Hebrews tended to push God's patience day after day. Paul reveals to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that there's more going on in this story under the surface. There he writes of the Hebrews in the wilderness, they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was who? Was Christ. You see, when Moses struck the rock, he not only supplied water to thirsty people, he also painted a picture of how God desires to slake our spiritual thirst. In the Bible, the rock is an idiom for the Messiah. And on the cross, as in the wilderness, God struck the rock. And you remember what happened 50 days after the crucifixion. The Holy Spirit or the refreshing waters of God were poured out on the day of Pentecost, bringing refreshment to our souls. Jesus cried out in anticipation of that event in John 7, verse 37, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Guys, spiritual life still gushes from the rock. Jesus Christ. Back in chapter 12, verse 41, God called the slaves that exited Egypt the armies of the Lord. <laughs> you know, there's a bunch of slaves coming out of bondage. God calls them an army? An army of bricklayers? The moment they're saved from bondage, they are thrust into a spiritual battle. And guys, this applies to us as well. The moment we're saved, We find ourselves in the midst of spiritual warfare. We discover that the Christian life is not a playground as we had hoped. It's a battleground. When the nomadic Amalekites heard that a new watering hole had opened up in Rephidim, they wanted it. And so they came to take it from the Hebrews and a battle broke out. And the manner in which the Hebrews prevail teaches us how to win the spiritual skirmishes in our lives. One thing before we get to the battle, it was Josephus, the Jewish historian, who says the Hebrews fought the battle with the Amalekites using the weapons of the drowned Egyptians. Josephus says that miraculously God made the metal weapons float on the surface of the water and flow over to the bank where the Hebrews could pluck them out of the Red Sea. God had foreseen the need. Now Moses, along with two of his elders, Aaron and Hur, went to the top of the hill overlooking the battlefield. And as long as Moses holds up the rod of God high into the air, the people are encouraged and the Hebrews prevail. But the moment Moses lets his hands drop and the rod disappears from view, the Amalekites get the upper hand. And so the battle goes all day long. Verse 12 tells us, Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. The arms of Moses had to be supported by others in order for Israel to win. And this is a key for us when it comes to the battles that we face. Oftentimes our faith gets tried and tested and our arms grow weary. And it's then that we need friends to come alongside us and help hold up our faith and hold up our trust in God. Charles Spurgeon once said, Friendship is one of the sweetest joys of life. 
Many might have failed beneath the bitterness of their trial had they not found a friend. This is why the lone ranger for Jesus is destined to fall. We need each other. When we grow weary, if there's no one to come alongside and help hold up our hands, we're in trouble. We need each other. It reminds me of the man who walked into the church wearing his hat sat down right in the middle of the sanctuary with his hat still on his head until finally one of the ushers approached him and said, Sir, you'll have to take off your hat. Suddenly he jumped up and he started shouting, Eureka! I've been coming to this church for years and I finally figured out a way to get someone to talk to me. Hey, we need to always be widening our circle of friends to include those who need an errand. Those who need a her, those who need a him, those who need someone who will come alongside and help hold up their hands and help them stand strong in their faith. It's helping each other that often is the difference in winning and losing the battle. Spiritual leadership, as Moses found, can be taxing. Pastors also have to keep their hands high. People feed off our faith or droop with our discouragements. And pastors need folks in the church, like Aaron and her, to stand by our side and help us hold up our hands. In chapter 18, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, helps Moses manage his duties. In verse 14, we're told, So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Now, now his intention was good, his motive was good, but the way he was going about it was all wrong. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Moses represented God. But he had to be reminded that he was not God. This is what a pastor needs to grasp if he's going to survive. Psalm 121 verse 4 tells us that God never slumbers nor sleeps. I hate to admit it, but pastors require six to seven hours per night. I also realize that 20 years from now, most of you will no longer be a member of my congregation. But 20 years from now, my wife and my four kids will still be members of my family. And that's why I need to put them first. Thank the Lord for Jethro. Jethro teaches Moses and a lot of pastors that they can't do it all by themselves. A pastor needs to point to the Savior while keeping it clear in his own mind that he is not the Savior. Jethro tells Moses, you will surely wear yourselves out for this thing is too much for you and spiritual leaders need to learn the art of delegation. In verse 21 and 22, Jethro tells Moses to select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter that shall that they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. And this is what we've done here at Calvary Chapel. As our church has grown, and as the volume of people we minister to has grown, we have chosen assistant pastors and elders 
to address the small matters. And they, and if they have a problem too big for them to handle, then they bring it to me and I go to God and we pray hard about it. This, though, allows me to focus on the three things that Jethro gives to Moses as his priorities. Notice verse 19. Moses, pray for the people. Verse 20, Moses, teach the people. And verse 21 and 22, oversee the bigger issues that arise with the people. Moses' job and my job is threefold. Plead, feed, and lead. I don't always weed. (laughs) You know, I, sometimes I speed. But, but my job is to plead, to pray, to, to feed, to teach you God's Word, and to lead in these bigger issues. Three months after leaving Egypt, the Hebrews arrive at Mount Sinai. God tells Moses to rope off the bottom of the mountain. The people will see the glory of God, but only from a distance. Only Moses will be allowed to go to the top of the mountain. And in chapter 19, verse 16 through 18, a description is given of this mountain meeting between God and the people. There were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain. And the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. And now Mount Sinai was completed, completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. Man, the mountain must have looked like an erupting volcano. Verse 19 even tells us that the people heard God speak to them in an audible voice. This mountain meeting was quite an experience. But it's interesting that it was an experience that the people never wanted to repeat. In chapter 20, verse 19, they tell Moses, You speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. They were overwhelmed by the glory of God. Even though in chapter 19, verses 3 through 7, we're told that God's intentions toward the people were loving and kind. He tells them that He'll keep His covenant with them, that they'll be His special treasures, that they will become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Nevertheless, despite those promises, they felt unworthy and unfit to enter the presence of God. I think it's always healthy for us to remember the difference between love and acceptance. God's love for you is unconditional. He loves you regardless of what you do or don't do. But His acceptance of you is highly conditional. God has terms that you must satisfy in order to be accepted. The Hebrews knew that God loved them, but they were rightly unsure of His acceptance. They were not sure about the terms of this covenant and whether they had succeeded in completing them. It's interesting, in Hebrews chapter 12, The writer compares Israel's experience at Mount Sinai with our experience at Mount Zion or the heavenly mountain. Their access to God was restricted. Moses roped off the bottom of the mountain. Our access to God is unlimited. We can come boldly to the throne of grace. They approached God in fear. We approach God in confidence and in assurance. They were aware of their sin. According to Hebrews, our spirits have been perfected by faith in Jesus. They were still under scrutiny. Our names have been registered in heaven. Their mediator was a man by the name of Moses. Ours is the living Lord, Jesus Christ. Under the law or the old covenant, the people were afraid to come to God. It took a new covenant. 
made possible through the blood of Jesus Christ to give us assurance and confidence so that we could come boldly into God's grace. Now, at Mount Sinai, God gave to Israel a covenant. We call it the Sinaitic or the Mosaic Covenant. Until now, God's blessing on Israel has been based on His promises to Abraham. And the Abrahamic covenant is still in force. But now this other covenant kicks in. And the Mosaic covenant establishes certain laws that Israel is to obey. And God's blessing now becomes dependent upon their obedience. Understand, this covenant that God made with Moses has now become obsolete. On the night that Jesus was crucified, he took the cup of wine and he said, Take this cup, the cup of the new covenant. Jesus made a new covenant with us. Therefore, we're no longer under the stipulations of this old covenant. And yet, for 1,500 years, the law of Moses served as a vital instruction for the people of God. It instilled in God's people important sensitivities, and so we can't just dismiss it. In fact, we can benefit greatly from studying it thoroughly. One rabbi has counted that the Mosaic Law consisted of 613 different rules and regulations. He counted 248 do's, positives, and 365 don'ts. Are negatives. One prohibition for every day of the year. The laws of Moses included three types of laws. Moral laws, which apply to all men at all times. Civil or social laws. Laws that would be needed by the Hebrews when they entered the land of Canaan. And thirdly, ceremonial laws. Laws that dealt with the tabernacle and sacrifices and that ultimately painted a picture and pointed us to Jesus Christ and His work for us. Ten of those commandments you'll recognize immediately. Chapter 20 lists for us God's Ten Commandments. And notice there are Ten Commandments, not Ten Suggestions. God gave them as commandments and He expects us to keep them. Can you name... By heart, God's top ten, His Ten Commandments. One little boy was asked to name the Ten Commandments, and he said, I can only name two. Pick up your toys and don't drink and drive. (laughs) Obviously, he was mistaken. It reminds me of the Sunday school teacher who asked her class, What commandment would you be breaking if you pulled your dog's tail? One little boy raised his hand and he says, What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. (laughs) But here they are, all ten of them, no other gods. No use of physical images in worship. No taking the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath holy. Honor your parents. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, no lying, no envy. We're in the process of studying these commandments on Sunday morning in greater detail. Understand, though, the Mosaic Law was not the only set of commandments around at the time. Have you heard of Hammurabi's Code? You remember that from world history? That was around. There were other codes around. But none of them have survived the test of time. Only these Ten Commandments. You know why? Because they're not man's laws. They are God's laws. God is the author of these commandments, and we know it. There's something about these rules that resonate in the human heart. There are some people that believe when God created Adam, He wrote these Ten Commandments into Adam's heart, into his nature. We call them conscience. But when Adam sinned, his conscience became seared. And so God had to come back and give these to Moses on the mountain so that Moses could restate them to you and to I tonight. Also note in verses 22 through 26, the next set of commands after the big ten deal with the construction of an altar. (laughs) It's as if God 
knows already that none of us will be able to completely obey all Ten Commandments, especially when we consider the spirit of the law as well as the letter. God knows that we'll break them and we'll need an altar on which to offer a sacrifice for forgiveness. Which brings up an interesting question. Why did God give Israel the law in the first place? And there are four reasons. You might want to jot them down. First, the law reveals our sin. Hey, without those speed limit signs on the road, you'd never know if you were driving too fast. And without the law, you'd never know if you'd sin. Second, the law reveals God's righteousness. It raises the bar beyond what we would expect out of ourselves. God's righteousness. Third, the law points out our need for a Savior. It teaches us that none of us can be good enough for God on our own. We need outside help. And fourth, the law outlines the Spirit-filled life. You remember Jesus summed up the law with two commands. Love the Lord with all you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the law shows us what love will look like. And you can't run roughshod over the law of Moses and still say that you're walking in love. It just don't work. Chapter 21 deals with laws concerning slavery. You became a Hebrew slave when you could no longer pay your debts. And this was actually a benevolent gesture. This was far better than a debtor's prison when there was no way that you could work off your debts. Also, the most that a slave could work was six years. In the seventh year, all slaves were set free. And so there was benevolence and kindness worked into this system of paying off debts. Oftentimes, too, the masters were so generous and kind to their slaves that at the end of the six years, the slave would agree to stay and serve his master voluntarily. He realized that he could do better as his master's slave than he could ever do out on his own. Verse 6 describes what would happen when a slave made that decision. Then his master shall bring him to the judges, and he shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. The pierced ear was a sign that he was a love slave that he was a voluntary slave to the master's will, to his merciful master. In the New Testament, Paul refers to himself in several of his letters as a bond slave or a love slave of Jesus Christ. And he is referring back to this law in Exodus. Paul had found that life as a slave of Jesus Christ was far better than he could ever achieve out on his own. And he was happy to be a slave of Jesus Christ. Put his ear to the door to prove it. In verses 12 and 13, God differentiates between first-degree murder and manslaughter, a legal description that we hold to even until this day. The next few verses list infractions for which capital punishment was imposed. In ancient Israel, in addition to murder... Kidnapping, striking a parent, even cursing a parent were all crimes punishable by death. Teenagers, praise God, we are no longer under the law of Moses. But you can learn from it and you can respect your parents. Note the overarching rule in verse 24. When it came to the punishment of violent acts, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, we moderns read this as harsh, but understand, this was a call for mercy, for restraint, for fairness. Because let's all agree. The human tendency is that if you punch me in the mouth, I'm not going to just punch you in the mouth. If you punch me in the mouth, my tendency is going to be to want to punch you in the mouth and then kick you in the shins to boot. 
The human tendency is not fairness. It's not eye for an eye. It's one-upmanship. I'm going to get one better on the person that's harmed me. And so God is tempering justice. He's, he's providing for fairness here. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Don't go overboard. You read in chapter 21, verses 28 through 36, about a man's ox goring another man. And you wonder, what in the world does this have to do with me today? But this is extremely applicable. What he's teaching us here is that we are responsible for our property. Whether it's an ox or a pit bull. An open pit bull or a sports car or your kids getting in your neighbor's trash or whatever. People are held accountable, not only for the harm they cause, but also for the harm caused by the possessions and the people under their authority. An important law here that applies to us. Chapter 22 deals with retribution and retaliation in ancient Israel. Guys, God's laws make sense. Notice verse 2. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies... There shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. That makes sense. If a stranger breaks in my house in the middle of the night, I'm going to blow him away. And I'm going to witness to him as the paramedics try to get there. (laughs) But we all have the right to defend ourselves and our property. Notice in verse 3, though, If someone breaks into my house one night and rips me off, the next morning I can't go track him down and shoot him. We're told if the sun is risen on him, he's no longer a threat to me personally. He just stole my stuff. There shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. And if he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. I I believe in that too. That's good. That's good wisdom. Now, if he's out of my house, I can't go shoot him. I just want to go and get back my stuff. Notice nothing is said about prison. Notice that. The emphasis in the law of Moses was on restitution. It was on repairing damages. He pays punitively for his crimes by paying double to the person that he's harmed. Today, thieves are tossed in jail and the victim is never compensated. That's not justice. That's not fairness. Verse 9 establishes the need for tort law. Offenses will occur that are not civil crimes, and yet justice requires a remedy, and so judges are appointed to serve that role. There is an important law in verse 16. If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her, To be his wife. Notice, just because they have sex doesn't make them married. Hey, I have couples that come to me and they say, Oh, Sandy, we're living together. We're already married in the eyes of God. Where in the world do you get that? God didn't tell you that. God told you right here just the opposite. Verse 16 states clearly that you aren't married until the proper legalities are fulfilled. In ancient Israel, it was the payment of a bridal price. In modern America, it's standing before a judge or a pastor and taking the vows of commitment to one another. The rest of the chapter in a nutshell, here it is. Exercise the death penalty for sorcery, bestiality, idolatry. Don't mistreat a stranger. You were strangers in Egypt, he tells them. God will defend the widow and the orphan. If you loan a brother money, charge him no interest. Return what you borrow. And this is the tough one. Don't curse a public official. (laughs) I told you you would need God's help to keep these commandments. These were the laws that governed ancient Israel. Are they applicable to America? Not all of them. 
Not all of them. The Mosaic law was intended for a theocracy. And we are not a theocracy. We are a democracy. But do they all contain good wisdom, valuable insight? Absolutely. And we can learn lessons from them. The first nine verses of chapter 23 discuss slander, perjury, bribery, and the Good Samaritan laws. The Sabbath laws and the three annual feasts in Israel are also highlighted in Exodus 23, and we'll discuss them in detail when we get to Leviticus. In verse 23, God tells Israel, For my angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Bud Lights and the Skintites and the Wild Nights. And I will cut them off. There are enemies in your life that are standing between you and the promised land that God wants to cut off. Maybe there are no Hittites, but maybe your problem is the Bud Light. Understand in ancient Israel, God was building a physical kingdom in a geographical location. And thus the blessings were physical. Victory over armies, bread and water, no sickness, no miscarriages or barrenness, etc. But today God is building a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of men, and thus his blessings are spiritual. God wants us to live free from sin and depression and anxiety and spiritual barrenness. He wants us to be fruitful, full of joy and love and good works. But there are enemies in the land that will oppose us, the Hittites and the wild knights. And he wants to drive out our enemies so that we can enjoy to the fullest his blessing. But I want you to see how it's done. Notice in verses 29 and 30. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and you inherit the land. God takes care of our personal Hittites one at a time. He conquers the drinking problem, then the temper. Before long, the dirty language disappears. Little by little, God takes full possession of our lives. That's why you shouldn't get impatient. God helps us to conquer our habits and our enemies one at a time. We begin to take possession and live in total victory little by little. It's a growth process. But here's how you can delay the process. Look at what God tells them not to do in verse 32. You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. Guys, don't compromise. If you compromise, that's how you can delay the process of spiritual growth in your life. Oh, if we let a few Hittites live up there on the hill, that won't be a big deal. Or, oh, if we keep a few Bud Lights in the refrigerator, that won't be any big deal. God says it's a big deal. Coexisting with the enemy will lead you to sin eventually. We're going to discover you've got to deal ruthlessly with the foreigners if you want to inherit the promised land. And the foreigners in your life are all those things that are foreign to the will of God. If you compromise, if you try to coexist, you're going to set yourself up for spiritual failure. He says, don't compromise. If you stay pure and totally devoted to God, God will help you overcome little by little. In chapter 24, Moses again leads the Israelites to the mountain of God to make sacrifice and to officially accept the terms of this covenant. The people agree to keep God's commands and Moses in turn sprinkles them 
with the sacrificial blood. A strange event takes place after the covenant has been ratified. On the day the law was confirmed, God demonstrated His grace. I find that so interesting. He makes an exception. And He allows Aaron, his two sons, and the 70 elders all to come up onto Mount Sinai. And in verse 10 we're told, they saw the God of Israel. That blows my mind. For the next 1,500 years, until Jesus comes to earth, no man apart from a high priest will behold the glory of God. We're told in verse 11, on the nobles of the children of Israel, he did not lay his hand, so they saw God, and they ate and drank. What amazes me is that they're so laid back in God's presence. Here they are standing before the holy God, chowing and chilling. You you remember from a distance, God's presence was so awesome and so frightening that they didn't even want to talk to him anymore. They wanted to go through Moses, not, not deal with God. But apparently, when they got up close, they realized that God really loved them. They learned of his warmth and his acceptance and his love. And it set them at ease. And they enjoyed being with God. Sometimes God can look menacing from a distance. But in Christ, when you get up close, you begin to learn how much God loves you. And you discover that, yes, you want to reverence Him, but you also want to rest and relax and enjoy His goodness. You can do that. He loves you. And He wants to be with you. Moses went to the mountaintop to behold God's glory and receive further instruction. And the remainder of Exodus tells us what happened over the next 40 days and nights. The glory on the mountain and the ugly down in the camp. Lord, thank you tonight for your word, for these chapters in Exodus. And we pray, Lord, that you'll continue to lead us and guide us as we move through our study of your word. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We ask you to continue to teach us as we walk by faith in you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.